The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Thank you very much, Eamon. Good evening. You're listening to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock. And Dr. Coleman Gallagher is back with me, the planetary geomorphologist from the UCD School of Geography. Uh, for our guide to the galaxy on the hard shoulder. We're not venturing too far into the galaxy uh, this week, uh, Coleman, just into uh, orbit, Earth orbit, and the International Space Station. It has been up there for over two decades. Uh, Most of us don't really know anything beyond Chris Hatfield singing a few songs, (laughs) David Bowie covers on it. So tell us a few practicalities then, first of all. How big is it? Oh, it's a big structure. So it's um, it's a structure that is built around a central truss that's 110 metres long. Okay. And off that central truss, uh, there are wings that are the solar panels of the station. And there are 16 of those. Actually, there are, there are eight, but each, each one has got two separate rows of solar panels. So there are 16 of those. In fact, in 2021, six more were attached. And those solar panels, uh, the 16 alone, have got an area of eight tennis courts. That's about the size of, a, of another soccer pitch. Um, so it's a really large structure. Then between the solar panels and on the same plane as them are the pressurized modules in which astronauts and cosmonauts work. And there are 16 of those pressurized modules. And the, the, the pressure or volume inside those modules is about the equivalent of the largest 747 that's been made recently, the 747-8. It's about two-thirds the volume of a, of an Airbus A380, or in more everyday terms, it's about 107 Ford Transits in volume. Wow. So it's a really big huge, volume inside. It huge is. Huge structure. And does all of the power for that structure come from those solar panels? It Yes, it does. Um there is some uh, augmentation from docked spaceships, in, uh, sorry, from docked um, um, vehicles, from docked space vehicles that can help it to reorient itself or to boost its altitude. But the electrical power comes from the solar panels. In fact, the when there were 16 solar panels, it produced about 120 uh, kilowatts of power. With the augmented system, it can produce about 240 kilowatts of power. So... Um, a laptop would take would use about 200 watts. A fridge would use about 700 watts. So you could get a lot of laptops and yeah, fridges and okay. so on. So it's quite a lot. How many crew are on it at any one time? There are quarters uh, and facilities for a standard crew of six, but the record number of people that have been on it is 13. So that arose when uh, a space shuttle docked and uh, was taking some crew off and putting some crew on so the actual pilots of the space shuttle also came aboard mm. and uh, I think the previous record had been 11 so they broke the record at 13. <laughs> okay. But there are good reasons why it's a crew of six and most it sometimes it can be a crew of seven in fact um, but generally it's a crew of six because there are normally two Soyuz modules docked to it and they can take three astronauts or cosmonauts off in case there was an emergency. Uh, so for a crew of seven you'd, you'd require three docked um, human-rated spacecraft. Okay, or one sacrificial lamb to be, <laughs> Hopefully to, not. To be left behind. <laughs> um, how do they feed themselves up there? All the food obviously goes up and gets stored. What type of food? Yeah, it goes up and gets stored. It's uh, normally de- dehydrated food for the Americans and the Europeans. Um, it comes in, in bags uh, that can be heated or not heated, depending on what they have. Uh, they're kind of silver foil bag- bags about the size of a packet of crisps, but 
but uh, but thinner. Um, they can be heated uh, and then eaten either with cutlery or uh, with a straw, depending on how liquid it is. The the Russian astronauts prefer um, some tin foods as well. Uh, there's a strange phenomenon in space where taste becomes impaired, and so food loses its flavor. Okay. Um, and they prefer the tin food because it has more flavor. So the the Americans and the Europeans um, uh, supplement their food with a lot of spices, and there are good phys- physiological reasons for that. It's it's interesting because um, on Earth our fluids tend to uh, move towards our lower extremities into our torso and and further. Um, in space, they go throughout our body, including into our sinuses, and um, that that makes the sense of smell degraded. And the sense of smell is a huge part of taste. So yeah, there are interesting physiological reasons behind that. Wow. Okay, I, th- I, I like that as well. That the the Russians bring their own food supply. They like the tinned, uh, tinned goods. What do they do? This might seem like a silly question, given all of the work they do up in the ISS, which we'll talk about in a moment. What do they do to relax? Well, they a lot of them look at Earth. Uh, that's one of the most popular things. So there's a cupola um, that looks down at Earth. The the station is is constructed so that there's what there's what's called an, uh, a nadir side of the station which looks downward, and a zenith side which looks out into the universe. And uh, they added this um, this dome made up of a central window and I think about eight smaller windows. Uh, that gives them a 360-degree view and more because it looks straight down at Earth as well. So many of them go into that. Um, they they have uh, communications with Earth. They can talk to friends and family. Uh, they, have they the internet as we do? Yes, they do. In so fact, they can watch Netflix. Uh, they probably can. I guess they can. Um, in fact, recently the... Uh, the downlink was improved and they get 600 megabits per second, so that's not bad. Oh, that's great <laughs> it's better, better than most places in Ireland. Yeah, exactly. I must talk to whoever. We've moved into a new house. <laughs> the latest I've gotten is we have to wait till November before we have internet or television. So anyway, um, I might have to talk to someone there. Can I ask about day and night? If there are people, and there are people for whom they can fly transatlantic, water off a duck's back, there's others, and it completely throws them out. The whole circadian rhythm gets ruined. I imagine up there, it's completely different. Absolutely it is. Um, The the space station orbits at um, about 26,000 kilometres per hour. So it completes one orbit in 93 minutes or so. That means one day, one sunrise to sunset cycle and back to sunrise. So there are 16 of those in our 24-hour day. So it can be difficult for people to sleep in those conditions. The sleeping compartments, they're like small telephone booths, um, and they're arranged um, around the interior, the the, the complete interior of the, the pressurized volume. Um, so that there are astronauts sleeping at 90 degrees to each other, then the, the other 90 degrees, and then the other one. They all have windows. They all have little portholes. So they tend to cover them with shutters or blinds so that during their sleeping hours, they don't have those 16 sunrises to bother them. Okay. Uh, because the sun, you know, after all, it, it's not shaded up there. There are no clouds. It's in, it, The sun is a white star. M- most people think it's a yellow star. It's classified as a yellow star, but actually it's pure white. So it's incredibly blinding. Um, so that's why they do that. And do they all work on the same clock? They do. Yes, they work on. Uh, so they're all. If if you got up there and said like it, it they they would all recognize. Oh, well, it's nighttime now. Yes, yes, they would. Uh, they they work on um, on Greenwich Mean Time essentially. Okay, that's interesting. Because if you get the Trans Siberian Railway, 
through Russia, the train stays on Moscow time no matter where they are. Okay, right. So no, you could be over in Siberia and you're still operating on Moscow time. Yeah. It's absolutely bizarre. But they've learned at least in outer space they, to, to to adhere to GMT. That they have. And in <laughs> fact, that, the, the, your your story about the, the, the Trans-Siberian, in fact, was the way it used to be everywhere until uh, firstly the, the Paris Meridian was chosen and then after Harrison invented the marine chronometer, uh, he was he was English, so they decided on Greenwich. So yeah. that standardised time. Well, that that kind of segues nicely into the science uh, and and the research and the work they do up there. What do they do? They they do a lot of research with uh, with a huge set of classes. I suppose the most important uh, are research into astrobiology. Um, sounds like a science fiction term, but really it's a term uh, that covers. Uh, the biology of plants and uh, and creatures, including animals and insects and, uh, and nematodes and tardigrades and all these microscopic creatures, but also includes human beings. Um, moving on from that, they study physiology a great deal. Um, in particular, they're interested in the effects of long-term uh, existence, work and living in what's called microgravity. So uh, the, people see the astronauts floating around and they think it's zero-g, in fact, they experience um, um, microgravity. It's not full zero-g, but it's enough to cause bone density loss and muscle wasting. And for long-duration crewed missions to Mars, for example, these are things that need to be okay. understood. Um, they also undertake um, important research in space physics and deeper cosmic physics. Um, so they, they have a huge range of research topics. So is it worth it? Well, that's all the a, money they spend on it. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, over the the thirty years since it was first proposed, and really they they decided they were going to do it. It's cost about one hundred and fifty billion US dollars. Seems like a, a vast amount of money. It costs three billion dollars a year to maintain it. So that's including the, the thirty years. That's included in that. Um, but when you divide that, so 150 billion divided by the approximately 1 billion people who live in the European Union, the United States, and Russia, uh, it turns out to be $150 uh, per person over 30 years. It's mm. not a great deal of money. Um, and in fact, if you look at the proportion uh, that the, the space station cost in terms of US GDP over those uh, 30 years, the US GDP over those 30 years has been $400 trillion. And this, the, this, the space station has cost $150 billion. So it costs about 0.04% of total US GDP yeah. over those 30 years. I think that's pretty good value for money, even if it hasn't made incredible breakthroughs, because frankly, I don't think it has. Uh, apart from the fact that it's up there, and that people have lived in it continuously since 2000. The space program in general is part of this human drive to explore that we've always had, uh, that, that has led to the, 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 the distribution of human beings across the planet and has led to the discoveries of new continents, new cultures, new resources. They, they haven't always ended out, or turned out well in terms of the, the meetings between cultures, in fact, pretty terribly at times. And yet they have brought us to the world that we live in at the moment. I think if we stopped exploring, if we stopped exploring space and our solar system, first of all, hopefully deeper space in the in the longer term, I, I think the human race would, would decay, frankly. I think we would become introspective. I think 
we would uh, we would start looking at the earth as a set of very limited resources in which there is a huge competition uh, rather than looking at the broader solar system as a resource base that would allow us to continue developing. Coleman, an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million Thank for coming into us again. Dr. Coleman Gallagher, planetary geomorphologist from the UCD School of Geography. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.